Good morning. Will you uh, pray with me to begin our time this morning? Father, we come before you uh, with many different thoughts in our minds, many different life experiences throughout the week. Lord, we come to you maybe with apathy, getting out of bed this morning, thinking that, well, this is just what I do on Sunday. We come to you with uh, maybe anger and bitterness as we had an argument with our spouse or a family member on the drive here. We come to you with our doubt, our doubt in your goodness that if you are good, then why have you allowed a loved one to die? Why have you allowed this diagnosis In my life, why have you allowed these things to happen? We come to you in our self-righteousness, thinking that we are good on our own. Lord, we come to you distracted by lesser things, things that will not satisfy. And we lay all of this at your feet. Lord, you are real, and you are worthy of our worship, of our honor, and our praise. And so, Father, I pray that by your Spirit you would teach us this morning. Father, give us a foretaste of your glory, of your goodness, of the praise that is happening right now in heaven around you. Father, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Jeremiah 2, chapter 13. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of of living waters, and they have hewed out cisterns for the broken cisterns that can hold no water. This was God's message for his people hundreds of years ago, and this was Micah's message for us last week. A difficult message, but one that we needed to hear, and one that Judah definitely needed to hear during that time. And I'm sure during that time, as a nation and as individuals, there was a feeling of hopelessness going on. And so to begin, I want you to imagine a time when you felt hopeless. A time in your life when you looked around and you didn't see a way out. You couldn't fathom getting through this particular difficult situation. For a lot of us, it's probably pretty easy to think of one. Um, I wrote some common examples for you. First, the couple who has had miscarriage after miscarriage. 
and for the life of them can't seem to stay pregnant. Or an adult child learning of their parents' cancer diagnosis. The person in their 30s who deeply, deeply wants to be married and is still single. The man who just lost his job has a wife and a few kids and a decent amount of debt. The young parent up at 3 a.m. with a screaming infant, wondering if he or she will ever sleep again. The wife walking towards the door, opening it and slamming it shut while yelling, I'm done. It's over. And lastly, the friend or family member who continues time after time again to reject Jesus and live a life of rebellion and wandering. Whether big or small, major or minor, all of us to some extent have experienced and can relate to a feeling of hopelessness. Being in a situation where you think that this is it, that this is how it's going to end. There's no way out. It's over. And as we've looked at the past two weeks, this is the nation of Judah. They are in Babylon, in exile, and they have messed up. They have sinned. They have repeatedly broken the covenant with God and have chosen to define what is good and what is evil in their own terms. And so because of that, Jerusalem was overtaken and they were led into exile, living in a land that was not their own, completely hopeless, or so they thought. Last week, uh, Micah had the honor of what I'm going to call playing the bad cop, talking about all the bad stuff that Judah had done. Today, I'm going to come in the room during the interrogation and I get the privilege of being the good cop. Um, I get to not only talk about Judah, but also Israel. And even though they are both in exile, there is hope. And that's what I want to make abundantly clear this morning. Because of Jesus, there is hope. And so from our text, there are three promises from God to his people that lead me to this conclusion. Okay, so go ahead and open up to Jeremiah chapter 31. If you haven't already, it's page 660 in the Black Pew Bible in front of you. As Rick said two weeks ago, um, a shift takes place in the book of Jeremiah starting in chapter 30. Okay, from 30 to 34. It's been a doom and gloom message uh, from God through Jeremiah to the people thus far, all right? But there is light at the end of the tunnel, and chapter 30 is the start of it. For our purposes this morning, we're going to begin in chapter 31. So, Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31, we read this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. 
my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. As I said, I want to point out three reasons from this passage Um, And you can find them in your notes, okay, if you want to take notes this morning. And the first is this, the new covenant. The new covenant. Professor and scholar John Walton um, explains a covenant this way. He says, quote, it's like a treaty. A covenant is an agreement made between countries, cities, or people that makes them allies. All right, in the Old Testament, it is God who makes a covenant with Israel, The first time we see God entering into a covenant with someone is um, after the flood, okay? He tells Noah that humans will continue to be evil, but he promises to never flood the earth in that way again. Then we see God make a covenant with Abraham and his family. He promises Abraham many things, including that through him and his family, all the nations of the world will be blessed, Years later, God makes another covenant with the nation of Israel. And the terms of this covenant, this agreement, is the law, including the Ten Commandments. And lastly, God makes a covenant with David. He promises David that from his lineage, the Messiah will come. Covenantal language is very, very common in the Bible And here, Jeremiah is speaking on behalf of God and saying that God is promising to do a new thing. He's promising to make a new covenant, a covenant that is not like the old one where Israel failed time and time again, but a new one, a different one, and a better one. When we think of the new covenant, um, if you're a Bible nerd, Luke 22 should come to mind. Luke writes this, and it should be on the screen as well. Luke twenty-two fourteen, And when the hour came, Jesus reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that has been poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus is the fulfillment of the new covenant. Jesus is the promised Messiah uh, of Israel and Judah. Quick side note, I'm just going to say Israel from now on. He is the one who came and died on behalf of Israel and on behalf of all of humanity to forgive us our sins and to invite us into a life of eternal freedom. And this new covenant, 
It's instituted by a celebration of the exodus from Egypt with a meal. A meal with bread and wine. A meal with Jesus' body, the bread, and his blood, the wine. Everything else that I'm going to say this morning is built on this foundation. Okay, we have to understand this truth. The new covenant is realized in the person of Jesus. This is the number one reason for hope. The author of Hebrews understands this when he writes in chapter 9, 15. He says, therefore, he is the mediator, Jesus, of the new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Just get this, think about this. Remember that that no matter how bad Israel had sinned up until this point, God is promising hope through the coming Messiah. And not just to the nation of Israel, but as we see with the new covenant and with Jesus' ministry and with the early apostles and their ministry, this hope is offered to Gentiles as well. It's offered to you and to me. I even hesitate to say this next statement because it can come across trite, but I recognize that. But I truly believe that no matter how bleak your situation is right now, no matter how bad you think it is, whether it's singleness, infertility, a terminal illness, that because of Jesus, there is hope. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. Unfortunately, your circumstance may not completely change in this life. It may not change in this age. But it is, in fact, in spite of our circumstances that there is hope in Jesus. Because he has healed us for what we need most. And he has forgiven us our sins and promises to raise us to life. I was wrestling with and processing this whole idea with a friend in preparation for this message. Um, And he added this, and it's so good that I'm just going to read it word for word. He said this, quote, But our hope is not only for what will come in the future, but also in a life with God through Jesus now, in this moment, in this life. He goes on, he says, Through him and in him, we have peace now, despite what life throws at us. He says, life is hard, and trusting in Jesus doesn't change that. In this life, you will have many sorrows, John 16. Why some people get married, are able to have children, and get healed, and some don't, is a great mystery, and not always one for us to understand. understand. And he ends with this, but Jesus calls us to follow him anyway. Trusting that through him and through our suffering, in a weird sort of way, that's my addition, he says we will have a richer life with God. Is that difficult to believe this morning? That God actually uses our suffering for our good? 
in the moment, I know it's hard for me to believe it. But when hindsight's 2020, I do. Because of Jesus, there is hope. So, our first reason for hope is the new covenant. Secondly, look at verse 33. Verse 33, just the first half, says this, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. He says, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. All right, so what is this new covenant that Jesus is at the center of? What, what exactly is God going to do? Well, according to Jeremiah, according to God, he is going to, quote, put the law within them and he will give them a new heart and write it on their hearts. Um, scholar and translator Robert Alter translates verse 33 this way. He says, quote, I have put my teaching in their midst and on their heart I have inscribed it. He then writes in his commentary that this new covenant is, is to be fully internalized, meaning inscribed on the heart, which is different than the previous law of Moses, which was inscribed on stone tablets. And so what, if, what does all this mean? I believe that God is promising that one day he will pour out his spirit on his people so that they may have the law and the ability to obey the law inside of them. Not in their own strength, but by the power of his spirit. And all of this is realized and comes to pass because of the suffering, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus the Messiah. Ezekiel picks up on this theme in the Old Testament. He speaks on behalf of God as well. And he says this to Israel. He says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh, which just means a soft heart. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God will remove the hard heart of the people of Israel and he will give them a soft one. He will then put his spirit inside of them and giving them the ability to obey what he commands. And we see this fulfilled. We see the fulfillment of this in Acts chapter 2. And once again, we also see that this promise is not just for Israel. It's for all people as well. Finally, last reason, the end of verse 33, as Tim read, he says this, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Despite Israel's disobedience, despite their failure, despite their repeated rebellion, despite their sin, all of that, God looks upon them and says through Jeremiah, I will be your God, and you will be my people. If you think to the book of Revelation, John, the one who receives the revelation from Jesus, he picks up on this phrase. And in Revelation 21, he writes this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying this. This is actually going to happen. Okay, just think about this. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Father, make it happen. This message spoken through Jeremiah is for Israel first, and I'm going to say it one more time, but eventually it's for all of us. Every nation, tribe, and tongue we read will be around the throne of God. This message is for all of us. This message is for the person here this morning, maybe it's you, who feels unlovable, who feels unworthy, who feels ashamed, who feels a deep sense of guilt because of the life that you've lived. You are loved by God. And if you have repented and have been saved from your sins, you are a part of his people and you are free. You are free from the guilt of your party lifestyle in college. You're free from the shame of your abortion that you had years ago. You're free from whatever sins you have committed before a holy and perfect God. His death and life offers forgiveness and freedom. You belong in his family and you are a part of his people. As we sing almost every Tuesday, it seems, out at the ridge, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I'm one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. To close, I'll let you peek behind the curtain of my preparation this week. Um, On Monday, I had a direction of how I wanted to end this sermon. Um, But going to bed that night, I wasn't 100% sure that that's what was actually going to be said. And so Tuesday, I got here, and as you can expect, uh, I changed almost everything. And I went to bed that night feeling content, but still had this feeling like there was something else that God eventually was going to want to say. And then on Wednesday morning, at 9 a.m., I met with a friend who had just tragically lost his mother. And in our conversation, he asked me if I had heard about what was going on in Asbury, Kentucky, or University, sorry, in Wilmore, Kentucky. And to my shame, I said, no. Long story short, for those of you who don't know, on Wednesday, February 8th, at 10 a.m., the students met for their normal Wednesday morning chapel service that they have three times a week. They had their regular routine. The speaker, who is a faculty member at the university, spoke what seemed to be like a pretty normal 26-minute and 38-second sermon. I went and listened to it. 
He was talking about the love of God. And specifically, I think he titled his message, Love in Action. If I can summarize it with one quote from him, near the end, he says this. He said, the United States needs this kind of love. He said, they need a bunch of Christians experiencing the love of God so that they can pour out the love of God. He encouraged the students not to rush off, but to sit and listen to God. And he said this, he said, I pray this message sits on you like an itchy sweater that you just gotta itch, that you gotta take care of. That was the morning of February 8th, 12 days ago. It's still going on. They have begun to take breaks at night, but it's still happening. Thousands, literally thousands of people have come to that campus. People from other countries like Brazil and Indonesia and almost every single state in our country. The line just to get into the chapel, it stretches over a mile and a half at different times in the afternoon and the evening. And it appears that it has spread to other college campuses as well, and actually most of them being here in the Midwestern part of our country. Some are calling this a revival. At the very least, it appears to be a mighty move of God. Time will tell its impact. The fruit will be the evidence of the next few weeks, months, and years. And most people who were there that first morning say that it started with confession and repentance following a very simple message. Confession and repentance. If you watch the videos and read about the people who are posting on it, there is a common theme. Almost all of them say that it is extremely simple. No big names on stage, no fog machines, no special lights, the guitars aren't even plugged in. Just students leading others in worship. One young man who drove six and a half hours to be a part of it said this. He said, revival isn't hype. It's ordinary people who are simply hungry for God. After hearing this young man's statement, I was struck with this question. Am I hungry for God? Do I want him more than anything else? And if I'm honest, the problem for me is, is that when life is good, it's not when life is bad, it's when life is good, I don't feel like I need to hope in Jesus because I have everything that I could ever need and want right before me. And so instead of being hungry for God, I want more, more stuff and more things and am hungry for the God of materialism. 
I want to be accepted, so I'm hungry for the God of relevancy. I want power and a seat at the table, and so I'm hungry for the God of influence. I want a sense of worth, so I'm hungry for the God of success and productivity. I want ease and comfort, so I'm hungry for the God of entertainment. But the problem is, and many of you know this even better than me, that these are empty and false hopes. They will not satisfy. Put bluntly and put another way, there's a work of God going on just south of here, and I'm watching Netflix. Can you relate? I know we've talked a lot about when times are rough, we should put our hope in Jesus. But what about the good times? Do we forget him? Are you like me and you believe in the lie that says I am self-sufficient and I am capable and I can do this in my own strength? I'll be honest, I don't have a nice, neat bow to tie on this sermon. I don't have a special way to end. I don't have a nice metaphor or a story to make us feel good to leave this place. I just have a simple plea. After thinking about what's going on across our country right now. And the plea is this. Get right with God. Get right with God. For the Christian... Confess any known sin that you have and obey what you know to be true. And for the non-Christian, God is real. And he's holy and he's good and he loves you and he's coming back one day to judge the living and the dead. Will you be ready? Confess and repent. The band is going to come up and close us with a song. And while they do, please join me in worshiping. Join all of us in worshiping our God. Or feel free to use this as a time for prayer. As a time for confession and repentance. Um, I got nowhere to be after this. And I would love to pray and talk with you. And so I'm going to pray, and for our prayer uh, to end here, I just want to pray these verses over us. Okay, so Jeremiah 31, will you please stand with me? Jeremiah 31, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Because of Jesus, there is hope. Amen.